So we've been going through the book of Isaiah. We finished chapter 7. We're going to be in chapter 8 when we come back to it after Easter. And uh, today we want to have a look at how Isaiah 7 is used in the New Testament. And that's obviously why we're turning to Genesis 3. <laughs> I'll explain in a moment. But let's pray and we'll study together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for its richness. We thank you for its depth. We thank you for its life. We thank you that it changes us, molds us. May our minds be renewed tonight. May our hearts be captivated. And may our love for you grow ever stronger. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Genesis chapter 3. So it seems a little strange that if we're teaching tonight, as, uh, as you said in the bulletin, that we're teaching on the New Testament's use of Isaiah, that we start in the book of Genesis. It might seem a little strange to us, but there's method in my madness. Genesis chapter 3, we famously have the fall. And it is the start of a story, and, and to me one of the most fascinating things in Scripture is following the thread, starting uh, in the Old Testament and moving through. And for us to see the full import of what is happening in the New Testament, we need to see where the story begins, and we need to follow our thread through. So we're going to start in Genesis, and... Uh, some of this will be a little repetitive in the sense that we covered some of it, uh, most, of, most of the Old Testament stuff, when we dealt with the virgin birth in Isaiah 7. So I will go a little quicker over that, and then we'll get to the New Testament. But in Genesis 3 and verse 16, Genesis 3 and verse 16, or let's start in verse 14 actually. Um, Yahweh said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In light of what we were talking about this morning, those of you who were here, um, the curse on Adam, the curse of suffering, the curse to the woman of pain and childbirth, all of these things are just so uh, telling in regards to just the communal lament that we have in this life. But I want to really draw our attention to the curse of a serpent. The phrase in particular in verse 15, that there will be enmity between uh, the serpent and the woman, 
between your offspring and her offspring, literally her seed. And it is from this verse that we have the concept of the seed of the woman. Now, we mentioned this when we taught through uh, verse 14 of Isaiah 7, but it's worth repeating that the concept of a seed, an offspring, is something that was understood in that society. And remember, by the time this Genesis uh, account was written down, much time has gone past subsequently, and they are well aware, the readers of this text, that the seed is always determined through the man. It is the seed of Abraham, the seed of Isaac, the seed of Jacob. The descendants follow from the man. It is through the man that the seed is reckoned. And yet here we have this strange phrase that it is her seed. It is her offspring. It is the woman's seed. Why her and why not the seed of her husband? And in a sense, it could have been. It's the, the seed of Adam. And when we understand this to mean that there will be one who will ultimately redeem, when we see the messianic line developing from this starting point, the Messiah could equally be called the seed of Adam. Why not? He's a descendant of Adam as much as he's a descendant of Eve. And so there has to be a reason for this. And... What I think is, is clear is that, as I spoke about when we dealt with it in, in verse 14 of Isaiah 7, is that the very strange thing here is, is that this is something that would have been very, very alien to Eve. He's talking about her offspring. How many offsprings exist in the world at this point? None. Zero. She's never had a child. And so... The whole concept is very strange. And I believe in chapter 4 that when she gives birth uh, to uh, Cain, that she believes for a short period of time that Cain is the Messiah. We talked about that previously. But here we have the beginning of the Messianic line. The Messiah is going to be human. He will descend from the very part of humanity that has fallen. He will descend from, the, from the, the human realm. And as time goes by through the book of Genesis, this human line is developed. But Genesis 3, verse 15, leaves us with a mystery. Why is this, this Messiah the seed of the woman rather than the seed of Adam? That's the mystery. Then as we go through Genesis and we come to chapter 12 and and um, he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Then Isaac, and then Jacob. And then from the sons of Jacob, he's going to be a descendant from the tribe of Judah. And that is the line being ever more narrowed down through the book of Genesis. And then we go a little bit further on, and this line gets further narrowed. And you can turn with me now to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. So go through your Pentateuch, then your Joshua and your Judges, and you get to 1 Samuel, and then you get a little bit further, and you get to 2 Samuel. So in 2 Samuel and chapter 7, there is a promise and a covenant that is made with David. 
And he says to David in halfway through verse 11 of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. By the way, that is not God saying, I'm going to build for you some real estate. Okay? House does not mean a house that you live in, as we would use the term. I think, um, again, sometimes we're just so used to Bible translations, we don't think through it. I think translations could help in this regard. A better translation would be dynasty. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And so he says, I'm going to build you this house, this dynasty. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, before, uh, made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So here's an interesting thing. Here's a prophecy to David. And it says, David, there is going to be a dynasty that comes from you. And he talks about this dynasty. And in the, in the context of this dynasty, there is going to be three things that are promised that will be eternal. The dynasty itself will be eternal. The house of David will be eternal. The dynasty of David will be eternal. The kingdom that this dynasty has, the kingdom will be eternal. And thirdly, the throne, the ruling will be eternal as well. They will be eternal. But specifically here in 2 Samuel, this speaks of a son. And the son is one that if you note in verse, um, verse 12, is going to come from his own body. This is not a distant son, this is an immediate son. And this son is one who is going to establish his kingdom. So there'll be a kingdom that will be established through his son. And that son will build a house for my name. So just as God is going to build a house, a dynasty, so this son is going to build a house for God. Do you see the parallel there? God's going to build a house for the dynasty, and the dynasty is going to build a house for God. It's a play on the word house, because house can mean house in the sense of dynasty, but house can mean house in the sense of a building. And that's the play on words. And so what's happening is that what David's descendant, who's going to come from his own body, will start a kingdom, and this kingdom is going to begin, and this kingdom will happen, and there will be a house for God, a temple that will be established, and the throne that comes with this kingdom will last forever. This son, notice in verse 14, is a sinner. He's going to commit sin, and he'll be disciplined, but despite his sin... God will not depart from him as he did from Saul. There'll be no removal of the spirit and what have you as happened with Saul. Clearly, here, this son is Solomon. Solomon's the one who built the temple. Solomon came from David's own body. And Solomon had a kingdom that came up and what have you. And it is Solomon who is being spoken of. So there is a prophecy that David will have a dynasty and a house, and the house will last forever. Now, in the context of this developing messianic line, 
it's clear that the Messiah is going to have to come from the house of David. And immediately after David gives birth to Solomon, there are promises that come to Solomon. Now turn to First Chronicles. So you go through your Samuels, you go through your Kings, and then you end up with your Chronicles. We're in First Chronicles 17. And I'm kind of glad that we're doing this tonight, by the way, because not only are we filling in some gaps that I missed out in the New Testament, we're going to fill in some gaps I missed out in the Old Testament. Not missed out, but skimmed over, and we didn't look at in detail. So let's look at it now. First uh, Chronicles 17, um, God reiterates his covenant with David, and we're going to pick it up in verse 10. And it says, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord, the Yahweh, will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Sound familiar? All very familiar. Very, pretty much identical. Well, almost identical so far to the passage in 2 Samuel. Okay. I will raise up one of your sons and establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before me, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Notice the difference. The difference in this passage is there's no reference to sin. There's no reference to sin and what, is, what we think is happening here is that the first Chronicles reference is a prophecy that rather than prophesying of the immediate son, is prophesying of the future son, a distant son. Solomon is going to build a kingdom, but this son's going to build a kingdom. Solomon is going to, um, is going to be a son of David. This one will be a son of David too. But the difference here is that it is going to be his throne who will last forever. The key difference in this passage is the lack of sin and the fact that this distant son, his specific throne is going to be a throne that will last forever. Now you can say with Solomon, his kingdom will last forever because he's going to establish the, a dynasty and a kingdom that's just going to run. But a throne is one who specifically sits on it. And the distant son is going to have, he's going to sit on the throne, he's going to rule, and that rule, his unique, specific rule, will go on forever. And so, the messianic line is now narrowed further from the tribe of Judah to the house of David. The two passages here speak of this Davidic covenant, and it speaks of the near son, Solomon, and the far son, the coming Messiah. That's all we know at this point. Okay? Now, for us to understand how important this Davidic covenant is, then it will help us, I think, now to turn to Psalm 89. So keep going forwards in your Old Testaments until you get to the Psalms. Fairly easy to find. Big, big book. And then it's Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a song of praise. Look at verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of Yahweh forever. 
just a little, couple of little things, little uh, tidbits here for you to follow along with. Um, when you see the phrase steadfast love, it's not just talking about God loving. Steadfast love is a specific term that refers to his covenant-keeping love, his faithful love that is tied in with his covenants. So immediately the context is God's covenants. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. So it's praising God because of his steadfast love, because of his faithfulness, this is the God that makes and keeps covenants. Verse 3, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You see how he takes that concept? He takes that concept of the eternal throne and he praises God for it. That David's seed will be established forever. That that throne will last, not for a generation, not for two generations, but for all generations. Let's turn then to, to verse 19 of the same psalm. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall also strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked not, shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My, steadfast love, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn, a symbolic of strength, be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, and he shall cry, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And, I will coven and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes, don't keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with the rod and the iniquity of their stripes. You see the reference there to 2 Samuel and the disciplining of Solomon. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. This is powerful stuff. There's all sorts of things. I'd love to spend my whole time on Psalm 89, but I won't. But listen to what's being said here. God is saying, I promise something, and I'm going to do it because I'm not a liar. There are... I would say the majority of evangelical Christian scholars today who claim to believe the Bible is the word of God look at the covenants that God made with Israel and doesn't believe they will come to fulfillment in a literal way in which they were promised. God says, well, am I a liar? That's a powerful stuff right here. That's a severe challenge to those who doubt that God will keep his covenants as he promised them. And it ends with this statement, sun and moon. Guys, 
Is the sun still in the sky? Is there still a moon? Yes? Then God's covenant to David still stands. That's what he's saying. And this will be established. And you can see here, having read 2 Samuel, having read 1 Chronicles, you can see here the allusions to that covenant promise and rejoicing. This is the rejoicing that all of Israel would have done. Now, listen, most of Israel were not in the tribe of Judah. All the other tribes would have sung this song and rejoiced. Most of the families in the tribe of Judah were not of the family of David. And yet all of those families would have rejoiced singing this as well. Why, is it, why are all of Israel rejoicing about one specific family from one specific tribe? Because God has said, that's the one I've chosen. That's the one I anointed. That's the special one. That's the one that I am going to work through. And this messianic line, the redemption is going to come through this one. This family is going to produce the one and the Messiah. <clears throat> now, all of that is the background that I wished at the time we could have spent more time on, which I'm glad to have had the chance to do now, when we were looking at Isaiah 7. So let's go back to Isaiah 7 now. Isaiah 7. So in Isaiah 7, we have the sign being given, um, of signs. Bear in mind, remember what we did, those of you who were here for Isaiah 7. There is, um, there is the offer of a sign to Ahaz, an offer to him singular, and then he rejects it. And then God starts to speak you plural, he's talking to the house of David. And he says to them that God will himself, verse 14, will give you a sign. You is the house of David. You, plural, give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, we talked about the word virgin to death when we did Isaiah 7. So here is a 30-second summary of all of that. The word here in the Hebrew, Alma, does not specifically mean virgin, it does mean a young woman. However, of all the Hebrew words that were available to him, if he wanted to communicate a virgin, this is the closest one that he had. There is one woman specifically. The word the, the definite article, is there, and it's pointing to a specific woman. There is no woman in the context. And therefore, it's referring to a woman that would have been known by them all in, the, in, this, in this setting. What is the setting? What is the context? The whole context of Isaiah 7 that we've been dealing with for the last month or so is that there was a threat to the house of David. God has no... I was going to say no concern. That's probably not the right thing to say. But if, if Ahaz dies, he's a wicked man. If he's removed as a king, that's no slight on God at all. But Israel of the north and Syria, their plan is not just to get rid of Ahaz, but their plan is to take away the entire dynasty, to remove the house of David. That's why God's stepping in. It's not, oh my goodness, don't you do anything to Ahaz, he's my best buddy. Ahaz has rejected God, he's an idol worshipper, he's a wicked man. But they're trying to take away the house of David. 
Is the house of David in a good place right now? Uh-uh-uh. <coughs> the house of David is in deep sin as well under the leadership of Ahaz. But God said specifically, that's why I read to you Psalm 89, says it very clearly, if you are unfaithful, God will remain faithful to his covenant. So God's covenant, God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love is what's at stake here. And so the context is the house of David and the promise of the house of David. <clears throat> now, why have we gone through all of this Old Testament background to this point? Because I need you to understand that the context of Isaiah 7 is the preserving of the house of David. And the preserving of the house of David is all about the son of David, the offspring of David, the seed of David. David is specifically told in both those passages, both in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles, he is specifically told, you're going to be dead. You're going to lie with your fathers. You're gone. But your offspring will have your house. Your dynasty will go on. The dynasty will be eternal. The kingdom will be eternal. The throne will be eternal because the offspring will be eternal as well. That's the promise to David. 2 Samuel promises the eternal house, the eternal kingdom, the eternal throne. 1 Chronicles promises the eternal son. So that all of this is at stake and it all revolves around this seed. This seed, this one who's going to be the, the distant son, the eternal son, who's going to sit on the throne, the eternal throne. And he says in that context, there is the woman, the one that you all know about. And this woman is going to conceive. Is there a particular woman that they've been waiting for who's going to have a child? Yes, there is. And the wording here does mean a virgin. The only op we saw when we looked at all the different word options, we did a word study, we had a look at it a few weeks back, but when we looked at all the options, the only thing that this word could mean is that the sign would be an unmarried woman giving birth illegitimately, or it would be a virgin birth. And God performing a sign to say, I am with you, that is not going to happen for an illegitimate birth. This is a miracle, it's a sign, and it explains the mystery of Genesis 3. Why was the offspring the offspring of the woman rather than the offspring of Adam, the offspring of the man? Why is he the offspring? He's the offspring of David. Why, why is he the offspring of the woman? Now the mystery is resolved. The woman is a virgin. That's the answer. So Isaiah 7 resolves the issue of Genesis 3.15. It explains an age-old mystery about why the Messiah was to descend through a woman, the seed of the woman, offspring of the woman. And at the same time, it is closely linked. This is so important. This is where we're going. It's closely linked with the Davidic covenant. So what's being said here by implication is that this woman, this virgin, is going to bear a son. The son is going to be God with us. And who's that son going to be? That's the son that's being preserved because the covenant's being preserved, because the house is being preserved. This is David's son. This is the seed of David. This is the seed of the woman. This is the eternal one with the eternal throne, the eternal kingdom, and who's going to maintain this eternal dynasty. This is the one. And how is this all going to happen? Because of his name. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. 
And just like Genesis 3.15 tells you something but leaves you with a mystery, this now gives you answers and tells you stuff, but it leaves you with another mystery. What does it mean, God with us? How's that going to be? And that's something that Isaiah will tell us more about as we go through Isaiah. And ultimately, we know where that ends up. Now then, with all that in mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Finally, in a sermon that's supposed to be about the New Testament usage, we turn to the New Testament. Kind of handy, really, isn't it? Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I'm always fascinated by this, you know, by the way. I mean, what a story. You're engaged to be married, you're still a virgin, the text clearly says so, and then you're found to be pregnant. Poor Joseph. <laughs> what was he thinking at this point? Hey, it's all right, Joseph. It wasn't another man. It was the Holy Spirit. It's like, that, that's not the best excuse you could have come up with, really, is it? But there you go. You just have to, I, I think sometimes we bought, we're so familiar with these passages, like we were talking about Rahab this morning. We're so familiar with this stuff, but we don't actually think what it would have been like. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I, I'd like to, you to note something here. I'm going to get distracted by all of this stuff because it's, it's, it's intriguing, isn't it not, to, to us. But they weren't married. They were betrothed. They weren't married. They were betrothed. And yet he was going to divorce her. Tells us a few things. Firstly, it tells us that engagement is actually a far more serious issue than we realize in our society. Engagement is not dating. Engagement is not trying something out. Engagement is a commitment. It's a commitment that's far more serious than I think we realize in our society. It's one of the reasons I think that one of the modern trends of long-term engagements are not particularly a biblical concept. Secondly, when Jesus talks about divorce in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, and he talks about Moses allowing divorce, he's referencing, he's, he's teaching a passage on Deuteronomy. And I think that that passage in Deuteronomy, and I talked about this when I taught Mark 10, isn't talking about divorce as we would talk about divorce. It's talking about a divorce from betrothal, or at the very least, an annulment. It's not talking about a later term divorce. Just a few little things to throw out there. But certainly, uh, we know that, that Joseph is, is seeking in this to not put Mary in a situation <clears throat> where she is seen in, in a lesser light than she already will be seen in. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You know what? That's a story he needed to hear from an angel and not from his wife. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> it's like... Mary alone would not have convinced him. He needed an angel to tell him that that was the case. She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place, and this is Matthew now speaking, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, and here's our quotation, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a quotation directly from Isaiah 7.14, and here is the fulfillment of the prophecy. That there is this, um, that there is this virgin, young woman, who is going to give birth. <coughs> this is the seed of the woman. And so at this point, at this point, we know that this child that Mary is going to have is Emmanuel. Now, in Isaiah 7, who was Emmanuel? What was Emmanuel? What was this child? This child was a sign. To whom was this child a sign? To the house of David. This child is a sign to the house of David, promising, showing that God is going to keep his covenant with David. The covenant given in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, the covenant rejoiced over in Psalm 89. That covenant is going to be kept, and the sign is this child. Which is why the book of Matthew begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The son of Abraham. He's the seed of David. He's the seed of Abraham. He is the Messiah coming through that messianic line. Now, when we think of Isaiah 7 being quoted, we think of Matthew because Matthew is the place that quotes it. But I think even more fascinating is Luke's account. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to God, sent from God rather, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, I want you to note a few things here. Okay? Um, firstly, um, just as an aside, because I think it's helpful if you know these things, Matthew's account is from Joseph's perspective. We just read in Matthew, didn't we, that Joseph was troubled. What's he going to do? He's got these plans. An angel comes to Joseph. Joseph almost certainly... <coughs> Uh, is the focus of Matthew's Gospel. That is also, by the way, why the genealogy comes first in Matthew's Gospel. The genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, did you know there's two genealogies, one in Matthew, one in Luke? The genealogy in Matthew's Gospel is the genealogy of Joseph. Joseph was of the house of David. Is that relevant? No, it's completely irrelevant, because Jesus isn't descended through Joseph. But what's interesting is that Joseph is in the house of David, but he's descended from Jeconiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, we're told that Jeconiah is, is eliminated from the line which the Messiah will come by. So we know the Messiah is going to come from humanity, from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah, from David. And one of the descendants of David is Jeconiah. But Jeconiah is cursed, and nothing good will come from his offspring. Joseph is descended from Jeconiah. So if Joseph is the father of Jesus, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Matthew starts with the problem. Matthew resolves that problem with the story of the virgin birth. Luke 
is talking from the perspective of Mary. And so here, you'll see in this account, the focus is on Mary. That's why the genealogy, as would normally happen, comes later. There's no problem to be resolved. And the genealogy in Luke's gospel is the genealogy of Mary, and it shows that Jesus is descended from uh, the house of David, as is required, and not through the line of Jeconiah. The other thing I want you to note before we move on is twice already the word virgin is used. Now, I told you this when we dealt with Isaiah 7. The word Alma in the Hebrew, as I've already said, does not specifically mean a virgin, but in lieu of there being no better term, if you want to speak of a virgin, it's the best term you have in Hebrew. In Greek, the word parthenos is the word that is translated virgin, and that does mean specifically a virgin. That word is used twice here already, and it's going to be used once more in this passage. When a word is repeated, it's always making a point. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this would be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> the promise of Jesus is the promise that comes to fulfill a whole bunch of covenants. There is a reference here... <coughs> The reference here to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. But also, he is going to have the throne of his father, his ancestor, David. He is the distant offspring that was promised in the Davidic covenant, just as Isaiah 7 spoke of. Also, he's going to reign over the house of Jacob. He is the chosen Jew. He is the one that is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that goes to Abraham, Isaac, and then finally Jacob. And of his kingdom, as was spoken of <coughs> in both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles, his kingdom is going to have no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Virgin said for the third time when you think on these passages about Isaiah 7 being referenced you immediately think of Matthew chapter 1 because it is directly quoted but the link to Isaiah 7 is stronger in Luke 1 and I need us to understand why the word virgin is here used three times virgin 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 there is a promise of a virgin birth in Isaiah 7. And here, Luke three times mentions that Mary's a virgin. He's trying to point us to Isaiah 7. The context of Isaiah 7. Context, context, context. The context of Isaiah 7 is the preserving of the house of David. And the virgin birth is a sign to the house of David assuring the continuity of the house of David and the preservation of the covenant to the house of David and to David. And that's why the message to Mary is so specific in this regard. 
He is the one who is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Now listen. When Israel, after the Davidic covenant was promised, when Israel was cast out of the land, when they went into exile, they no longer have a land. They no longer have Jerusalem. They no longer have the temple that the immediate son in the covenant promise of 2 Samuel had built. Solomon's temple was destroyed. Solomon's temple's gone, the city's gone, the land's gone. What does God say to Israel? I am a covenant-keeping God with steadfast love, with faithfulness, and I will keep my promise. If it was ever a time when you would start thinking, well, maybe he didn't mean that. Maybe we misunderstood him. Maybe he meant something symbolic. Maybe it's an, it's an analogy of something. That was the time to think it. And yet, the tribes were maintained, the families were maintained, the genealogical records were maintained. Everybody in Israel knew which tribe they were from. They knew what family they were from. They knew who the house of David was. The house of David was still alive. And God's promise to them in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles was still the same. The house is going to stay alive. The house will be preserved. And with the house, there's going to be the preservation of the kingdom. And there is going to be a preservation of the throne. Because there is an eternal son who is coming, who will have an eternal throne and will have an eternal kingdom. His name is Emmanuel, God with us, and that's your sign, and he is coming. And now, after generations and generations and generations, that promise is being kept. You know, we look at this through 21st century Western Gentile eyes, and we look at it at Christmas time, and we go, oh wow, it's a miracle, it's a virgin birth, and we're missing the bigger point. Sure, it's a miracle. It's an, it's an astonishing miracle. A woman who is a virgin giving birth, of course it's a miracle. But the miracle is a sign, and it's tied into this whole stream of doctrine, this whole stream of revelation that has been building from Genesis 3 and onwards. And it, at the core of it all is that God can be trusted in the times of exile, in the darkest of times. <coughs> God can be trusted. The other week on a Tuesday night, we looked at Lamentations chapter 3. And Lamentations chapter 3 is one of the, the, the most powerful parts of Scripture to me. When I was a young kid, I told this story on a Tuesday. But when I, I know most of you weren't there, so I'll tell it again. But I was a young kid and I was first a Christian. I, I, I got into the whole Christian subculture for the first time. I, I bought Christian CDs. You know, actually, I didn't buy Christian CDs. CDs weren't around. I'm showing my age now. But I bought Christian LPs, long plays. Vinyl, as you guys now call it. And I bought Christian albums and I got Christian posters and got my first Christian books and just dove in as a, as a Christian teenager, newly saved. And one of the things they did in those days, and it's even worse now with social media and memes and Instagram and stuff, is they had all those nice little pictures with Bible verses on them. And I had on my wall a picture of a cat, a little kitten. And he was all curled up and nestled up in the cat was a duckling. How sweet. You think cats, these, these carnivores, these predators that would eat birds, but yet this duckling was nestled up 
in the fur of the cat. And over it was this scripture from Lamentations chapter 3. And it said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, and his mercies never come to an end. God's love is constant. He's always merciful. You, you rest, little duckling, in, in the bosom of this carnivore. All is well, because God, his love is steadfast. It was a complete misrepresentation of the context of Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3 is one of the most brutal chapters in the entire Bible. Jeremiah, who spent his entire life warning Israel of the impending judgment and got persecuted and imprisoned and rejected because of it, he got to witness the very thing he warned them about. And he saw people being destroyed. He saw his own family, his loved ones. He saw his city. He saw his temple. He saw everything being destroyed before him. And he speaks of God doing it. Why is he speaking of God doing it when the Babylonians did it? Because God told him to prophesy exactly that. That he, God, would raise up the Babylonians to discipline and bring judgment to Israel because of their idolatry. And so Jeremiah, in Lamentations chapter 3, in, Jeremiah, uh, in Lamentations 3, Jeremiah specifically says, You, God, have bruised me. You have broken me. At one point, he speaks about God using him as target practice, shooting him with arrows. He speaks of God being like a lion and a bear who's waiting behind the corner for Jeremiah to come by to pounce on him and tear him to pieces. That's Lamentations chapter 3. And then he says, But this I remember. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And his mercies never come to an end. What Jeremiah did is when the temple was destroyed, the temple built by the immediate son, the temple that was linked to this covenant promise, when it was torn down, when it was destroyed, when the lamb was lost, when Israel was out to the land, when everything that Israel had on the basis of their covenant promises was God, was destroyed and taken away, and Jeremiah watched God destroy them. He remembered, I know who God is, and he will keep his promises. You know what that picture on my wall as a kid should have had? Should have had a picture of a headless duck with blood pouring out everywhere and the head sticking out of the cat's mouth. That would have been more accurate. Because it's in that situation that we have. You know, when you're all nestled up and everything's good and everything's rosy and everything's fine and you're all secure. That's not the time you need to remember the covenant, the covenant love of God. The covenant love of God needs to be remembered in the dark times. And so this was a promise to the house of David. That, and, and again, this is why we took the time to read 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles and, and, and our Psalm 89. When you are unfaithful, and when I have to discipline you, know this. I will keep my promises still. It's powerful stuff. And God has come through. And the son, the child, Emmanuel, that was promised as a sign for the Davidic covenant, 
would be kept. Here he is as a sign to Israel. Here is the sign. The kingdom is going to come. The throne is going to come. The kingdom is eternal. And every excuse they had to spiritualize it away, to pretend it wasn't going to happen, to say that this offspring is not a, literally an offspring of David. How could that be? How could that possibly be? Every excuse they had, they had. And yet God came through and said, See, I can be trusted. So it's all fulfilled, right? Nope. That promise was given because even darker times were about to come. The temple was again destroyed. The city was again destroyed. Israel were exiled again. And this time the exile lasted not 70 years, but almost 2,000 years. The promise still remained. And in those near 2,000 years, Christian scholars look at the Old Testament and they say, oh, well, maybe God didn't mean what he said. There's no Israel anymore. And now there is. And God can be trusted to keep his promises. God is a faithful covenant-keeping God, and he doesn't lie, and he can keep his promises. And you want to know how you know that? Because a virgin gave birth to a son. And the kingdom will be eternal. And we don't have to spiritualize that kingdom away. The kingdom that was promised. What we see about the kingdom in Isaiah as we go through Isaiah. This is our Isaiah series after all. The people coming to worship God in the temple in Jerusalem. The nations coming to worship the Jewish God. The glory of God filling the earth. This promised kingdom physically on earth with a temple physically in Jerusalem and the Messiah physically there. Those promises will come to pass. There will be a kingdom and it will be eternal. And the king who sits on the throne is eternal too. God can be trusted. And so when we marvel at the virgin birth at Christmas time, here I am the week before Easter talking about Christmas time, but there you go. That's how these things land. When we marvel at the virgin birth, let's not miss the main point. The main point is this, is that this is a sign that God can be trusted and that he keeps his covenants with his people. That's the whole point of Romans, book of Romans. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And then he has to spend three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, showing that God has not forsaken his covenants with Israel, because if God has forsaken his covenants with Israel, then how can we trust his promises to us? God's promises will always be kept. One last little thought. When the temple was destroyed the second time round, when the darkness became darker than it had been in the time of Jeremiah, when the promise looked even less likely, Emmanuel remains as an assurance that God will keep that promise. But something happened in the destruction of the second temple that didn't happen in the destruction of the first. With the destruction of the second temple, something was destroyed. The records, the genealogies. Jews today with very few exceptions, some in the tribe of Levi, come across somebody 
named Levinson or Levi or what have you. They're probably from the tribe of Levi. But generally speaking, Jews don't know what tribe they're from, let alone what family they're from. And the Messiah had to be, the eternal son had to be from the house of David. And since 70 AD, there has been no way of proving that any particular Jew was descended from the house of David. What does that tell us? It tells us that the Messiah had to have been born before 70 AD. But how can that be? Because the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the, the distant son, the one, he's going to have a kingdom that's eternal, a throne that's eternal, and, and it will never end. Where is that throne? Where is that kingdom? Well, the answer is, is that the son who was born still lives. That's where we get to Easter. He still lives. And as he lives and intercedes for us to this day, he is a reminder to us of so many things. But amongst those things, that God can be trusted, that he keeps his promises. And in the darkest of hours, in the midst of destruction and turmoil and difficulties and trials, in the face of sin, in the face of rulers like Ahaz, God is still in control. He will keep his promises. He can be trusted. His steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God, and we thank you that you can be trusted. And as we spoke of faith this morning, Lord, may this evening's sermon just give us further encouragement that you can be trusted. May we take those steps of faith, doing what's right in difficult times, knowing, Lord, that you are with us, that you can be trusted even when things seem to fall apart, even when things don't go to plan, that you are in control and that you can be trusted. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of Emmanuel. We thank you that he lives. And we thank you that his kingdom and his throne is eternal. Amen.